let me read God's word and pray that he would teach us his word. This is beginning in chapter 19, verse 1. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. So Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as a life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid or he, he saw and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take my life away, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and he slept underneath a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold the word or and lodged in it, and behold the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind and after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the, in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And then Elijah heard it. He wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, Where are you going? What are you doing here, Elijah? I have been very jealous for the Lord, Elijah says, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go, return, to, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, the, of, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Let's pray and ask God to teach us his word. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you would take something that seems so distant and foreign and um, just completely removed from our own context, such as what is going on here in 1 Kings 19, that you would somehow, through your Spirit, bring it into our own, that we may see it, understand it, know you better because of it, and be changed people. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. One of the things that is true about every single person in this room, whether I know you or not, 
is that there is some part of your life that has not turned out the way that you either wanted it to. Um, Some part of your life that you could say, those were not my plans. Um, Some part of your life that you could say, those were not my ways. Um, For some of us, the way that things have turned out might actually end up being better than you could have ever imagined. Or maybe even in the life that you did kind of think you would would want for yourself didn't happen. But man, what what, what I do have, this is actually pretty good. Um, It could be, you know, a company you're working for. And maybe, of course, for some of us, that company could be a place you don't want to be. And you're, you're kind of thinking, Lord, why am I still here? I didn't think I would still be here. Uh, maybe it's a family. I didn't think I was going to get married. Certainly didn't think I was going to get married to you, right? I didn't think I was going to have kids. Uh, maybe your ways aren't, aren't, maybe these weren't the ways that you intended your life to end up. But maybe they're better. Maybe they're worse. Maybe they're more difficult. Maybe there's just sort of this pause there. We could go through a number of things, schools, not making a certain sports team. Everything that, that happens in life, all of us, to some of those things, at least one of those things, if not all of them, can look at them and say, this isn't exactly how I wrote it out. This is not how I planned it. These ways are not my ways. No one's plan ever fully comes to fruition. Our, expe- our expectations in life are constantly, constantly being shot down. And some of those plans and some of those expectations have brought us more joy than we could ever, ever imagine. And some of those plans and some of those shot down expectations have brought us deep, deep despair and confusion. Why did it have to happen like this? Why did it have to happen like this? Well, as we move into chapter 19 to, in, our, in our series here, the prophets of Israel, Elijah and Elisha, which is our series, we're on uh, dealing with Elijah now. Something very interesting happens here in chapter 19 that we don't really, uh, it, it's very unique. And that is, it's almost as if the camera just sort of begins to zero in on God's prophet. It begins to zero in on him, and we get to see and enter into the life of one of the Bible's most faithful, beloved men of God. We get to see him as he wrestles with failed expectations, with failed plans that just don't seem to happen the way that he thought that they would happen. He gets to see uh, God's plans happen and come to fruition, but they aren't in the way that he thought that God would work. And it's here and it's in these moments where we actually begin to find the hope of the gospel And that is this, for Elijah and for us, God's plans are not our plans. God's ways are not always our ways. And because that is true, there is hope for all of us. Because God's plans are not our plans, because his ways are not our ways, there is an abundance of hope waiting for all of us. And I I just want us to look through this story, and we'll see this every step of the way as we look at three things printed in your bulletin. You'll see the despair of unbelief, the kindness of God, and the restoration of hope. So with that, let's get into the first part here, the despair of unbelief. Let me paint the scene for you, something I intended to do earlier, but I didn't. This is coming on the heels of chapter 18, right? This is what we talked about last week. You have just witnessed perhaps one of the most uh, incredible, remarkable scenes in all of redemptive history, certainly until Jesus shows up and is resurrected. But probably for Israel, you haven't seen something like this. You haven't seen God physically do something like this since probably the parting of the Red Sea. 
And what is that? This, this was chapter 18. This was that battle, if you will, between Baal and Yahweh. Who is the true God? And in the midst of that, God rains down fire and incinerates this drenched wood pile, declaring, I am the one true God, not Baal. Thousands saw this. It was incredible. This is where you are. You've just seen this. And because you've just seen this, you're thinking, oh, well, the point of this is that God is, is saying, I am the true God. I am the one true God. Baal's not God. Therefore, this is going to make people repent. Because this is the whole problem right now with Israel. The kings themselves do not even believe and follow Yahweh. It's a big problem. And so the whole point of God's prophet in the north at this point is to direct them and call them back to God's word. And then all of a sudden, you know, Elijah gets this silver platter moment of of not just this word, but this action, this incredible action of this fire coming down and consuming. This has got to be it. I'm going to go back to Ahab, uh, Jezebel, all of them. They're going to be on their knees worshiping my God. The Lord has acted. He has been strong and he has been mighty. And so you go and you go back to Ahab and you go back to Jezebel, his wife. And what are they doing? Are they worshiping Yahweh? No. They're doubling down. They're now professing to kill Yahweh's prophet. Essentially to do to him what he has done to their prophets as well. And Elijah sees this. And I'm, I'm being very intentional about the, about the translation of that word. Uh, some, of your, some of your Bibles will say he was afraid. That word also is translated as see. And some of your translations will say he saw this. And that is the translation we're using this morning. Is that he saw this and he ran. Elijah sees this and he's devastated. He's broken. And it's not a devastation of why isn't God protecting me? It's not a devastation of I'm now more afraid of Jezebel and I'm fleeing for my life. It's it's a devastation of I am brokenhearted over my own people's lack of faith and belief. And I'm done. I'm out of here. In some ways, this is how many of you feel about perhaps maybe an upcoming election. We we have to choose between who? How did we get here? I'm done. I'm out of here. Perhaps not all of us. But you know this type of despair and brokenness, perhaps. You you know the, the question of how did we get here? This wasn't supposed to happen. Where is God right now? That's sort of where Elijah is at this point in time. But it's for God's own name that he, he, that he is despairing. That his people are not following him or not, not, not loving the things that he loves. And so he runs and he runs far away. He goes to Beersheba, which is in Judah, about 100 miles south of Jezreel. Israel's to the north, Beersheba to the south, and he's in, he's in the land of Judah. But he's not running from Jezebel. I want to make that point because he's, you know, he'd be safe enough in, in Beersheba. Instead, he goes another day's journey and he finds rest under this broom tree where he prays and asks God to take his life. He's ready to be with his ancestors. He's done. He is in utter despair of what he sees around him and he wants out if the Lord will grant it. I believe it's safe to say at this point that Elijah's plans for Israel and what God would do are not matching up with what God is actually doing. 
And it's so intense and it's so despairing that he's asking the Lord to take him home. Now, I'm, I'm a pastor. I'm ordained in this denomination. I can honestly tell you I'm not sure I've had that much despondence towards the look, as I look out into the world. I, I see brokenness and sin, and I hate it. But I don't know that I've ever grieved it so much that I just wanted to be taken out of here. That's where he is. That's where he is right now. And this is the first point. This is Elijah's despair of unbelief in Israel. So what does God do? Does he, does he scold Elijah? Does he say, look, you need to get back to Jezreel. You need to go talk to uh, Jezreel. And you need to go talk to Ahab. You need to be a man. Let's go. Does he, does he do that? Does he say, you're supposed to be my prophet, have faith? No, what we see next is that God validates Elijah's brokenness. And in it, we see the incredible kindness of God, which is my second point. Beginning there in verse 5b, what does God do? Well, first he lets him rest. He brings him food. And this happens a second time, right? More rest, more food. And then in verse 7, it's arise and eat for your journey is too great for you. So he arose and he ate and he drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and for 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. See, God is calling him someplace. Now, geographically, you've got to see this. Horeb is another 200 miles or so south of where he is. Okay? It would be like fleeing Fort Worth because somebody was after you and you, you went all the way to Austin. Like you'd probably be safe there. Uh, but instead of just staying there, he's going all the way to the Mexican border. Why? This is where we get to see this incredible glimpse of God's kindness. He's about to restore Elijah with a word. God in his kindness is about to affirm Elijah saying, look, I know, I know, I know this has brought you despair. I know there's got to be so many doubts even running through your mind right now. How can people see what happened on Mount Carmel on, on one day and then on the next day? They're just, they're, they're still not believing. There's still apostasy. There's still unbelief. And I know you probably even have to be asking yourself, God, are you still here? You called me to this. You called, you sent me to these people. Where are you? Let me show you, Elijah. <clears throat> Come to Horeb where I met with Moses and let me heal your despair. Now, there's a whole other lesson about the parallels here between God meeting with Moses on this very same mountain and him meeting with Elijah. Love to talk about that. Maybe we talk about that in small groups tonight. But we, uh, we'll not talk, we're not going to tangent there. We're going to keep going. Elijah goes and he reaches the cave in, Mount, in, in the mountain of God. And in verse 10b there, we get the first of two times that God asks this question. Elijah, what are you doing here? Tell me why you're here. And it's here that Elijah has finally heard. <clears throat> you can almost get the picture that he's been holding on to this since he's been running away. This is what concerns me. This is what I'm despairing over. Here it is. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars and they've killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left and they seek my life to take it away. You can almost see Elijah in the counselor's chair as Yahweh says, that's good, that's good, let it out, let it out. This is all good, don't hold back. Giving him space to talk about this. But all joking aside, you've been here and it's one of the scariest places to be. Where is that? It's the place where you're not sure if God is with you or not. 
It's the place where you're not sure if God is real. The place where all your plans have been ripped apart and your life experiences have been painted. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, your life experience have painted a picture that looks nothing like God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. Where is he? And this is the scariest place to be because we need a word from him. We need to see something. We need something. But what if he doesn't show up? What, what do I do? Where do I go? But remember, and this is crucial, it's not Elijah who has gone to Horeb to ask God for a word. It is God in his kindness that has called Elijah to this journey, who has fed him and nourished him to get there, <clears throat> to show him <clears throat> that I am still here. In a very, very personal way that, that Elijah would know as his prophet One of the kindest things that God does is he meets us in our despair. <clears throat> when our plans do not reflect God's plans, which is really the birth of despair in our lives, right? When, when our expectations aren't matching the expectations of what we see going on around us, he doesn't get rid of us. He doesn't get rid of us. He doesn't move on to someone else with more faith, maybe a better grasp of what his mission is in this world. Somebody who's more zealous for him. He says, no, come here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you work through this. Notice also, he doesn't explain himself to Elijah. He doesn't say, oh, well, let me give you the answers real quick. Let me, let me show you my ways. Let me bring you in to the full counsel of God. That way you'll know, and then you can go on about your life and everything will be fine. You know that wouldn't happen. Right? I love that he doesn't give him answers here. He doesn't try to reason with him. He just gives him a word. He gives him a word. Elijah, are you ready? Come to the opening of the cave and I will pass by. <clears throat> Just as I did for Moses, verse 11, and behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper or a thin silence. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Friends, not until Jesus shows up do we see this kind of kindness of God towards someone as we see it here towards Elijah. The type of kindness that listens to his people, that validates them, that lets them be heard. And, and this should be a good possible opportunity of application here that are we creating spaces for people to be heard in our family, in our church, our neighbors? Are, are we so quick with a method? Are we so quick with, with perfect counseling rhetoric? We need those things. We need methods. We need counseling. We need theology. But how much of us are we willing, how much of our time are we giving to people to just let them talk? To be with them in the midst of it. This is what, Jesus, this is what God does to Elijah. Listen to what Professor Dale Ralph Davis says on this verse. He says, the text does not say that Yahweh was in the voice, but clearly this is the signal to Elijah that Yahweh is present. The text is not saying Elijah must be more gentle. If anything, it says Yahweh must be gentle if his prophet is to have dealings with him. 
In one chapter, we have a God who at will incinerates an altar with unspeakable fire. In the next, we have a God who harnesses that power in a whisper. I'm here. I'm here. Elijah doesn't get answers, doesn't get explanations. He just gets, I'm with you. I'm with you. And before we move on, is this the God of the Old Testament that you had in mind of this morning when you came in here? Most of us would hear this and we would think this sounds like Jesus, but sounds this can't be. This is 1 Kings 19. But the tender, gentle, and kind God that gives rest and food and water to his servant who strengthens him in the time of his need and brings him to a place where he, like Moses before, just decides to reveal himself in a way that he has done to nobody else for the sake of his own profit. So that he could be restored. Is that your God of the Old Testament? Because it's the only way that we begin to understand Jesus in the New Testament. When Jesus came and he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority, not the Baals, not Rome, me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What God is doing for his prophet on Mount Horeb, he does for us in Christ. The unconditional affirmation that God is always with us is an unspeakable kindness that goes with us until our very last breath. Well, Yahweh has more to say to Elijah than I'm here. I've not left you. He actually is not surprised by any of this. Though it is surely surprising to Elijah. Well, what about his laws? What about his covenant, his name? Does Yahweh care about those things? Yahweh is not left powerless wondering, what do I do? They didn't... They didn't get the message at Mount Carmel. What am I supposed to do now? This doesn't send God back to the drawing board. In fact, it's what's left in verses 14 to 18 that restore our hope as well. Most of all, and it's here that Elijah sees that his plans are not God's plans. And because that's true, there's so much hope for him. And there's so much hope for you. Let's look at this briefly. The restoration of hope, verses 15 to 18. In the 1990s, uh, Saturday Night Live ran a piece called Deep Thoughts by Jack Handy. They were these anecdotal pieces where humor lay await in absurdity or even the obvious. And one that uh, I just have never been able to get out of my mind. Um, one deep thought, Jack tells, uh, talks about his nephew and how his nephew wanted to go to Disneyland. And he thought, well, I'm going to take my nephew to Disneyland. And thinking because his nephew likes a good joke... He drives by an old burned out warehouse and says, oh no, Disneyland has burned down. This is the dark humor of it all. At which point the nephew bursts into tears. Terrible, right? You know, who would do this? And this is where the humor is supposed to be, right? The deep thought finishes with, he cried and cried, but I think that deep down, he thought it was pretty funny. He thought it was a pretty good joke. <laughs> I started to drive over to the real Disneyland, but it was getting pretty late. <laughs> Thanks for laughing at that. This is my dark humor from the 90s. Um, because of the shape that so many of our lives have taken, there's a part of us deep inside that thinks, okay, God, are you just messing with me? Like, there's, there's a real part of us that says this. 
Are you just mess- Is this your humor? Because I'm not finding it very funny right now. As we think about our lives, as we think about what he's doing in them, part of Elijah's despair and part of our despair as well is that when we look around, all we see are burned down warehouses. But in God's economy, that's actually a lie. Yes, there is sin and darkness and pains of this world that God grieves so, 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 so much, but his kingdom is not lost. His plans are not thwarted, and his covenant with us is never broken. What Yahweh is about to do for Elijah is to show him that Disneyland, as it were, is in fact not burned down. It is actually thriving. Beginning in verse 15, he says, Return and anoint these three people, Hazael to be king over Syria, Jehu to be king over Israel, and Elijah to take your place as my prophet. Well, who are these people? And certainly this is probably not the place that we're spending our quiet times on every morning. First, Hazel is a pagan king. God will actually set in place to come in and pass judgment or overthrow Ahab's descendants who will take over king after him, who worship Baal as well, or as we'll read, walked in the ways of Ahab. For their apostasy and their lack of faith, God's judgment on them will be to have foreign kings, right, Gentile kings, to come in and take them out. It's almost as if God is saying to Elijah here, look, you think you're upset? You think, you think you're mad? This is my name that's being defiled. And my name will not be defiled. I have not forgotten about my covenant, Elijah. Second Jehu, who is that? Jehu will become king of Israel. He'll actually be a decent king. And he will execute Jezebel, which will be her judgment for worshiping Baal. And it's here that we need to peek ahead and read uh, and see what happens here to Jezebel. And this is, let's take a second here, but uh, this is 2 Kings 9. We'll probably talk about it in a couple of weeks. But King Jehu has just killed Jezebel. Then he, Jehu, went in and ate and drank. And he said, see now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. But when they went to bury her, they found no more than her No more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. When they came back and told told him, he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah. In the territory of Jezreel, the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel. And the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field. In the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say, This is Jezebel. That's the Old Testament you were looking for this morning. (laughs) What's happening here? What what is this? Two things. First, God's judgment. No one's getting away, Elijah. No one. And by the way, you're not perfect either, right? Nobody is getting away. God's judgment has to go somewhere. This is the penalty of sin, more specifically the penalty of idolatry and apostasy that he is seeing throughout the land and throughout Israel. God cares about this, is what he's saying to Elijah. I care about it more than you do. And what the story is telling us and why I read ahead is that judgment for sin has to go somewhere. It has to. It has to be satisfied or God is not just. He is not holy. See, it's not that the God of the Old Testament is bloodthirsty. It's that the people are thirsty for anything but God in the Old Testament. They do not care about his laws. They do not care about his altars. They do not care about his name. And that is sin. 
So judgment has to land somewhere. Where is it going to go? Where is it going to land? Where is it going to come from? And that's where verse 18 comes in, and it's so, so powerful. It is the grace of the text, and you cannot miss this, that God has preserved a remnant. And he's saying this to Elijah. I've preserved a remnant. And what a remnant is, is just, it is, it is saving somebody to himself that will carry on his covenant promises. Look, I know King, King Ahab has gone off the deep end, but that doesn't mean that my kingdom is lost. That doesn't mean that I'm not in control here. That doesn't mean that you haven't even done a good job. It just means that your ways are not my ways. Your plans are not my plans. He says that he has a path to continue his promises. 7,000 people, in fact, which is encouraging. That means there's 7,000 people who can continue the promises of God. But if we read ahead, we know that that gets whittled down to one. Right? And we all know who that one is. It's Jesus. Now, do you think that Elijah could see this? Do you think that he had any category for God's plans and his ways such as this? And see, that's where the hope is. That's where the hope is. You're going to try your entire life to get this figured out. And that's just going to send you into despair. And part of the hope and part of the grace and the mercy and the kindness of God to us is, is, is to say, look, you're not going to get all the answers. I've got them and you need to trust me. And there's actually more hope in not knowing those answers than trying to think and, and gather all the answers as if you even could. My ways are not your ways. My plans are not your plans. <clears throat> they are far bigger than anything you could imagine. But it doesn't mean that I've removed my hand from you either. I love you. This is what he's saying. There's always going to be, uh, there's always more going on around us that God is doing than we will ever be privileged to know about. And that either scares you to death or it is, in fact, the pillow that you lay your head on at night. This shouldn't make you say, I will never know the plans of God and this will always give me hope. The full plans. Because our ways are not his ways. But his ways and his plans are grace and mercy. Which is probably not the way we would have things work out here, right? I deserve judgment, but God preserves a remnant so that judgment can ultimately be poured out on himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Who in the world saw that coming? And if you can begin to enter into the size and the scope and the magnitude of this narrative and how other that it is, then perhaps in your own circumstances and in your despair and you're wondering what is going on, you can begin to find the hope that says, look, if it's this big to Elijah, how much bigger is it then for me? And we have more of that puzzle piece. We have more of the pieces of that puzzle in Jesus. So so in one sense, there's more reason for hope because his kingdom has started. It has been inaugurated. It is moving forward from the resurrection of his body, which will end in the culmination of all resurrected bodies that find themselves in Christ. Is that your story? It is because you're in Christ. Is this a story you woke up this morning and wrote? Probably not. But let this be hope for you. Let, let the pages and the words to Elijah be your words as well. I am with you. I am here. We will pick up next week in chapter 21. And I want to leave you with this. <clears throat> 
Does Israel have big problems? They do. But they also have a big God. And we've got an even bigger God as well for our problems in the person of Jesus Christ. Who in no way is concerned or surprised or caught off guard. He will meet you in the confusion and in your despair. He will not scold you, but he will comfort you. To tell you I will be with you always. And my plans and my kingdoms will move forward. Elijah... Go anoint Elisha. He will be my prophet in your place. God's plans will always move forward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for these words. We thank you for the kindness and the way that you have dealt with your prophet. We thank you so much for the hope that you communicate to him and that we get to read about and see that you have saved a remnant that your covenant is not thwarted, your promises are not undone, that you're telling Elijah, there's more to come. Would we see that all of, would we see all of that coming to fruition in Jesus? And because Jesus is real and because he died and because he resurrected, there's hope for us too, real hope, uh, that we can be changed people, that we can know you, right? That judgment although it misses us, that, that, that you will call account to all that has gone on and gone wrong in this world. Would you allow this to enter into our lives to see how big your story is so that we may be able to say, yep, your ways are not my ways. And it's in that that I will find hope. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen.